you will, open with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 8 through 13. So, bringing to conclusion what we started last week in uh, verses 1 through 7, in James dealing with and addressing the sin of partiality, um, we saw in verses 1 through 7 that uh, as the, the church is to hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, they are not to show partiality. In, and in addressing Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, one of the things that we were called to see last week from that text and addressing the Lord Jesus in that way is that we remember Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who had all things over all things, yet for our sake becomes poor. He takes on the form of a servant so that we in him, as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, could be made rich so that we could be made righteous, so that we could come before God the Father. And so one reason why we ought not show partiality is in our consideration of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on our behalf. We were to consider in those first seven verses as well how God uses the poor to shame the weak, how he uses the weak and the needy to show off his power. He doesn't just choose the wise or the powerful or the rich of the world, but oftentimes he chooses those who um, are of a lowly estate, those who are weak, those who are needy, And he shows off his great power through those people. And then in the final verses of of verses 1 through 7, we are to consider how oftentimes it's actually the rich and the powerful who oppress. Because of their powers of high estate and being high in the world, they are often the ones who oppress. And so James is just giving very practical wisdom in, in, in telling them they ought to consider that partiality is a sin. And it's just, it makes sense why it's a sin, but even more so in consideration with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it is a sin to, sh- to show partiality in the church, God's people. And so today in verses 8, 8 through 13, we see more of the theological considerations are to be given for why we ought not show partiality. And he, he draws from the word Uh, in giving us commands as to why we ought not show partiality. And so we're going to look at uh, what it means to fulfill what he talks about in these passages, uh, these verses, as the royal law. What is this royal law, and what does it mean to fulfill it? And what would our churches look like if we actually did it? So we'll see, as we fulfill the royal law, that, that one, partiality, it is a matter of sin and obedience, So James is not just writing and addressing the issues of partiality to make sure that the church is nice, right? He is writing against the sin of partiality because it truly is a matter of sin and obedience, this whole partiality thing. Number two, we're going to see, to to drive that point home even further, that to show partiality is to break the whole law. If you show partiality... It's not just that you're committing this, this little sin or that you're just not being as nice as you ought to be, but rather you are a transgressor of the law. You've broken the law. 
And third, we, we're going to consider that we who are under the law, this law of liberty, we ought to live like it. So if we're in Christ Jesus, the Lord of glory, who has become poor for our sake, who has lifted us up out of our sin, we ought to live like it. It ought to change our lives. And it ought to change how we treat and love one another and care for one another. And so partiality ought not be something that can be named among God's people. So we're going to read the passage, and then we'll work through that, those three points. Uh, We're in James 2, verses 8 through 13 today. So let's read, and then we'll pray together uh, and begin to work through it. James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever on point has become guilty of it all, of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that in the reading and studying of it today, that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things, that you would open up our eyes to see Jesus, and that in seeing Jesus and beholding wonderful things out of your word, that by the power of your Spirit, you would continue to conform us to the image of your Son. That your Holy Spirit would continue to sanctify us, causing us to look more like Him. That your Holy Spirit would bring salvation. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us grace and wisdom and discernment to know how best to apply and to live out faithfully uh, the truths, the commands, the exhortations that we see uh, from this passage today. So would you bless this time? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, number one, partiality is a matter of sin and obedience. Not just matters of niceness, but it's a matter of sin and obedience. So we see this in verses 8 and 9, where partiality is a matter of sin and obedience. So as James has been commanding them not to show favoritism, not to show partiality, He shows them how they can first do it, or in verse 8 at least, how they can do that positively. All right, so if they are not to show partiality, what ought they do in the positive sense, I should say? And so he tells them what they ought to do so that they can be doing well, so that they can be living faithfully. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So if they fulfill the royal law, they will be doing well. So the question is, well, one, what is the royal law? And here we see it, this quotation. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that verse is actually, it's a quotation from Leviticus 19, in uh, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, where Moses, or God, through Moses, commands the people that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, when when lawyers come up to him, pressing him, asking him, trying to test him, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and following, says the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, 
mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that phrase royal there, it means belonging to the king. And what James is doing in saying that this is a royal law, and not just saying that this is the law, but rather this is the law of our king. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that he has come to not abolish the law, but rather fulfill it, to bring it to completion. And so what that means for us as believers is that our lives are not lived apart from the guidance or instruction of the law. We'll see a little bit later on how we're not under the law in the old covenant sense, but that doesn't mean that we do not seek to now live out the commands of the law, that we don't seek to walk in obedience. But rather what we see is that Jesus has commanded his people that if you are part of my kingdom, if I have delivered you from the domain of darkness, you are going to walk as my people walk in my kingdom. This is a royal law, a law of the king, that as we walk in it, as we seek to walk in obedience, we are walking like our king and as our king has commanded. So how is it that we can love our neighbor as ourself? Only as we come to obey, by the Holy Spirit, the greatest command. So how is it that we come to love our neighbor as ourself? It's as we come to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. When we come to know the love of God and to love the Lord, our lives are changed. Our lives are shaped to be more like His. We are conformed into His likeness more and more as we give ourselves over to the Lord and as the Spirit works in us. And so the second command, the command that's like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself, that's not a command in isolation. That's not a command to say that, oh, love your neighbor as yourself, meaning love how you want to love, or love as the world tells you to love, or love as you think it's, it's best. But no, as we come to love the Lord and are shaped by his word, by the Spirit, how we love is going to be a reflection of God's love. It's going to be shaped by the scriptures. It's going to be God-glorifying, God-honoring. So, the world says that to love the world and to love your neighbor as yourself means that you not only accept the things that the world does, but you celebrate them as well. To which we say, that's not love to celebrate that which leads to death? No, rather, to truly love your neighbor as yourself is to love as God has said to love according to his word. So only as we are shaped by the love of the Lord for us and in loving him and in growing in the word can we come to actually fulfill by the power of the Spirit this command, this royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So partiality becomes a matter of sin and obedience. Don't show partiality, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Let's go over to Philippians chapter 2. Passages, a passage that I think just really puts it on display for us. Both instructive, I think, and also so convicting. Philippians chapter 2. Look in verse 3. 
says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what does it look like when we are loving our neighbor as ourself? I think it looks like us humbling ourselves and considering others, not just our own interests, but considering others' interests above our own, putting others before us. So, as we seek to fulfill the royal law as God's people, at receiving this instruction from James, when we come together, I think that means we ought to be doing these things as opposed to showing partiality. It means that when we come together, we ought to not show partiality to the rich. So, based on what's in people's wallets or bank accounts, we ought not show partiality. We ought not show partiality to the strong, to the wise, to the influential. And then positively, I think what that means, what, that, what we ought to do, is when we walk through the doors on Sunday mornings or into Sunday school or into a Bible study, when the church comes together, we ought to be not looking within, but looking around. What are the interests of others? What is going on in the lives of the people around me? How can I love and care for the people around me? So, I ought not show partiality to just the people that are easy for me to love. But maybe on a Sunday morning, me and my friend need to have an agreement. Hey, let's say hey to each other, but then we need to split apart. And we need to go welcome the other. Or maybe we, me and my friend, who I'm excited to see on a Sunday morning, maybe we go hand in hand to welcome someone who's new. Maybe we go hand in hand to meet someone who's maybe a senior adult that maybe we've never met before. And we need to go meet them and speak to them and be concerned about their life and how they're doing. Maybe it means that as we don't look within, but we look outward, as we see someone in a pew who looks like they are suffering and struggling and looks like they're barely holding it together, we ought to be more concerned with them than our own interests, and so we go to them, even though it might be costly in that moment for us. How can we help carry those burdens? Maybe it means that we go up to the people and, and we love them, and we genuinely care for the people that maybe we find it hard to love. Or maybe we go up to the people who we might have awkward interactions with because we just don't have those natural interests or ways of communication. But maybe it says, no, in humility, just as the Lord Jesus has come to me, I need to put myself aside, and I need to go to those people and love them and care for them, even though it might be difficult even though I might bumble over my words, even though I might have forgotten their name for the 15th time and need to apologize and need to say, can you please remind me of your name? Why? Because we, we want to love one another. Now, we think about what that means if we were to come together and say, if we were to all have an agreement, hey, as we come together at 10.30 on Sunday mornings, as we interact with one another, let's all reach the agreement that we are not going to be first and foremost considering ourselves, but as we have experienced the love of God, let's all agree to consider others as more significant than ourselves. 
what type of community would that look like? It would look like heaven on earth, right? That would be an irresistible community. If you worry about not being loved and not being encouraged because of everything you're going through, well, don't worry because you're about to have two, three, five, ten other people coming up to you and caring about you, even as you, in all of your struggles, are seeking to care for others. So if we all come together, all come together, considering, ourse- considering others more significant than ourselves, considering others' interests before our own, instead of living as if we have this mirror in front of us always, what would Edgewood look like as we are shaped by that more and more? Now look, like, Edgewood has, a, Edgewood has a reputation for how kind it is, how welcoming it is. Praise the Lord for that. But are we perfect? Not yet. One day, one day we will love each other with, with no sin hindering us. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? But right now, even as well and faithful as we love one another, we still do that as fleshly people. And so as we come to know the outgoing love of God that comes near to people who have sinned against him and sinned against him and rebelled against him, and we come to be shaped by that love more and more so that when we come together, all we're concerned with is saying, God, thank you for the way that you have come near to me and loved me, and I cannot wait to share that love with others. What would this church look like as we are shaped by that more and more? So shaped by the love of God that we would love each other more and more. And just to drive that application a little bit further, there's no shortage of information on this out there. We live in a world that is more connected than any point in human history. We are more connected to each other in more ways than any other point in human history. Yet, we have never, ever been lonelier as a people. We have never been more anxious as a people. For all of our connection, we're lonely. And the, the church is not immune to that. So what if, oh, and just, uh, Harvard, I just, I'm so fascinated by this study. If you want to go look it up. Harvard did an 80-year longitudinal study on happiness. Would we like to be happy? Like, God created happiness. Would we like to enjoy a happy life? You know what one of the major factors in happiness is? Over 80 years, not money, not education, right? Not career. One of the major significant factors in people's happiness, friendship. So what if the church came together and said, friendship is vital. God made us for relationship with himself and relationship for one another. And let's come together and as difficult as I am to love and maybe as difficult as we find it to love one another, here's the thing. I sinned against God. I rebelled against the Lord. I was dead in my sins and wanted nothing to do with him, yet he came near and loved me. 
And he puts that love gloriously on display as Jesus, the Son of God, goes to the cross on our behalf to deal with our sin, to take the wrath of God that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve, to bring us back to the Lord so that we can know communion with God and love with God. Jesus does that on our behalf. If Jesus has loved us in that way, how can we not seek to fulfill this royal law, to seek to love our neighbor as ourself? But instead, we struggle. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The reality is we are fleshly people who still, still deal with a flesh nature, a sin nature. It is easy to love some people. And to them, I say, great, I'll come consider their interests above my own. It's easy to. But what about the people that we find exhausting or taxing or needy or broken? What about the people who would come and take and take and take? Well, then we show partiality, right? We turn the eye and we go to the other side of the church, it is so easy for us to fall into this trap, but these are matters not just of niceness in the body of Christ, not just of being welcoming in some superficial sense. These are matters of sin and obedience. And God, through James, says, you are, you are a transgressor. You have been convicted by the law as guilty if you come in and live in such a way that you show partiality within God's church, within his people. So, we might say this, to the degree that we have come to know and experience the love of God in Christ Jesus is the degree to which we will live it out. I heard a pastor say that many years ago. To the degree that we have come to know and experience the love of God in Christ Jesus is the degree to which we will live it out. So, if I find within myself a heart that is not loving as it ought to be, that is not putting others' interests above my own, that is not humble but is filled with pride, then I have not experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus as maybe I think I have. Like Ephesians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there real quick. This is incredible. When Paul says to be imitators of God, he could have said, be imitators of God, hold to the truth. Be imitators of God, confront this, confront that. All of those things will be right and true. But when Paul says to be an imitator of God, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, beloved children, children who have been loved, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us. What does it look like to be an imitator of God? To love. Would we like to imitate the holy, holy, holy God that we have come to know and love as revealed to us in scriptures by the Spirit? If we want to imitate him and walk in a way amongst each other that is pleasing to him and honoring to him, 
We must walk in love. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills the royal law. He loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, and he loves his neighbor to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he does that for our sake. So, are we experiencing, are we growing in a knowledge of God's love for us? The test of that, or the evidence of that, will be how we live amongst one another. And the more we come to know it, the more we will come to live it out. But again, he gives these warnings, he gives these teachings in 10 and following, that if you break the law, or if you show partiality, you are breaking the whole law. You are a transgressor. That's what we want to discuss in point number two. Again, these are not just matters of niceness in the church. So to show partiality is to break the whole law. Look in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, or of all of it, sorry. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. To show partiality is a sin. It's a sin. And to sin is to break the whole law. And so he gives an analogy. He gives this analogy of, of murder and adultery. If you commit adultery but do not commit murder, you've broken the whole law. Because the one who says, do not commit adultery, is the same one who commanded, do not murder. And if you break one of the laws, you've broken the law. You've become a transgressor of it. You are convicted. You are guilty. So to break the law at any one point is to break the law. You're guilty. You stand condemned because of that. And so we have a few temptations. We have a few temptations in matters of showing partiality, but even in matters of, of, of the commands of Scripture. So maybe we come to the Scriptures and we see the commands that are given and we say things like, well, I've only shown partiality, but it's not like I murdered my brother or sister, so I'm not that bad off. To which, what would James say? No, no, no. If you break the law at any one point, you have broken the law. You stand condemned, worthy of the Lord's judgment. Or maybe we're tempted to say, well, I haven't murdered. I haven't shown partiality in these ways. Maybe I'm not, I don't know, I've avoided this, this evil that looks this way in the eyes of the world. But have you fulfilled the royal law? Well, no. By not fulfilling the royal law, you have sinned and you have broken the law. You are condemned. You stand condemned. So we are tempted to say, well, I've avoided this evil all the while walking in another evil, like showing partiality. And I think the third that we can so easily fall into, the third temptation, when we come to passages like this and we consider matters of partiality and how we treat one another, is to maybe see, say things like, look, God is gracious, and we use God's grace as an excuse for the small sins that we consider from Scripture. Well, look, it's not like I murdered or committed adultery. I've only shown a little bit of partiality today. You know, and we do this whole kind of equation game. But what would James say? 
No. To break the law at any one point is to break the whole law. You are a transgressor. You stand condemned. I think one of the most convicting things, it's just so revealing about Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve, is the first sin in humanity under which we deserve God's judgment and God's wrath was eating fruit. The first sin wasn't something like murder. It wasn't something like adultery. It was eating fruit. How tempted, how often do we excuse what we think of as little sins in our lives? I just, I ignored that person. Ah, sorry, but at least I didn't murder them. You know, we, we do this whole kind of calculating in our minds, but the reality is God is a holy, holy, holy God. And to sin against him is to commit an infinite offense against him. As he is infinitely holy, any sin against an infinitely holy God is an infinite offense against him. Whether it's eating fruit from a tree that he commanded us not to eat, or if it's showing partiality as we come and interact and relate to one another. So, to keep us from that, we get these warnings and these teachings in verses 12 and 13. And this is what we want to say, that to live under the law of liberty, I'm sorry, we who are under the law of liberty, we ought to live like it. We ought to live like it. We ought not justify away what we think to be little or small sins, sins like partiality. We ought to live like it. So, verses 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy, I'm sorry, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs under judgment. So one of the things that it's difficult, I think, a lot of times for us as, as new covenant believers, as Christians, is how we understand the Christian's life and relationship to the law. And really what Paul does in Romans 4 through 8, and you could even go farther, going all the way to, to chapter 10, Paul does this so well, and we'll look at a couple of those verses in just a minute, but we can say this to begin, that while we as believers are not under the law, we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. But the grace that we are now under is not freedom for sin. It's not a freedom to sin. We have no place to justify away little sins or excuse away little sins because to sin against God is of infinite offense and to break the law at any one point is to stand condemned before the Lord. So, while we as believers are not under the law but under grace, that grace is not a license or an excuse to sin and to fleshliness, but rather what Paul teaches and what we're going to go to in just a minute, and what I think these verses are driving at, which we'll see, is that because we are under grace, the freedom that we now have and enjoy in Christ is actually a freedom to fulfill the law, to walk according to the law, to obey its commands. So, it's not that we're under the law, and unable to because our fleshliness and sin, but rather we have been made free. We've been set free, and we are now under grace. But that grace does not excuse away sin. 
that grace leads us in righteousness so that we, by the power of the Spirit, would actually obey and walk in the commands of the law, the commands that we see in Scripture, which I think is why James uses this phrase, this law of liberty that we stand under. So let's go to a couple of those passages in other parts of the New Testament to help us understand this. Go over to Romans chapter 5. verse 20. <clears throat> so in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, Paul is, is teaching that if we are in Christ Jesus, we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer in flesh, the fleshliness, of our nature, but we are now in Christ Jesus. And just as Christ has died and been resurrected, we too, as he'll go on to say in Romans chapter 6, we have died to the ways of sin and now walk in newness of life. We're no longer in Adam, we're no longer under sin, we're no longer under the law, but rather we are in Christ Jesus. We are under grace, and we no longer walk according to the flesh. But according to Romans chapter 8, we walk according to the Spirit. That's, the, that's this new work that's been done. So look in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think this is what Paul is driving at here in those two verses. We are no longer under the law, and praise the Lord for that, because while we were under the law, we were in sin. And as we were in sin, that law came in, and it only increased trespass and sin within us. As we hear the commandments, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, do not covet when I heard that law, my flesh worked against me so that I wanted to covet all the more, right? So as the law comes in and we are under the law and in sin, that law, because of our sinfulness, just produces more sin. But praise the Lord, we who are in Christ Jesus, no longer in Adam and no longer under the law and no longer in sin, as we are in Christ Jesus, we are under grace, Sin no longer reigns over us, but we have a new operating power reigning over us. And what is it? Look in verse 21. Grace also might reign through excusing little sins, sinning all the more. No, grace reigns through righteousness. Grace does not give license to sin. Grace is opposed to sin. And actually, Paul says in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God has appeared to us and that grace of God that has appeared to us in the person of Jesus trains us to hate all ungodliness and walk in righteousness. Grace reigns in our lives through righteousness. We are under a new law, this law of liberty and freedom, but the freedom is now to walk in righteousness. No longer walking in sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. 
Sin is not reigning over us if we are in Christ Jesus. Grace is reigning over us, and that grace is leading us to righteousness, which is why Paul can say things like in Romans chapter 8, that while there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, and going down to verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So because of what Jesus has done and accomplished for us, if we are in Christ Jesus and we have been set free from being under the law, we are now under this law of liberty where grace is reigning. And that grace reigns through righteousness, through obedience. Where we could not obey the commands of the law because we were in sin, now that we're in Christ Jesus and grace is reigning, we can fulfill the law, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We are not hopeless. God has sent his spirit to dwell within us, to empower us. That is exactly Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 5, when he contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Paul says things like, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for sin, but rather walk in love. And he says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To walk in love is to fulfill the whole law. If you love your neighbor, if you love your neighbor are you going to murder them? If you love your neighbor, are you going to commit adultery? If you love your neighbor, are you going to show partiality? So then we might say, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to gossip about them. You're not going to slander them. You're not going to ignore them. But rather, you are going to come to them and love them. Loving them in a way that reflects the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. This law of liberty that we are under, we have been set free. But that freedom is not an excuse for sin, but rather the grace is reigning in us. The Spirit is leading us, empowering us to walk in righteousness, to fulfill this law, to walk in love. So that as we come to experience more of the the love of God, we are going to love others. So he says... Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So for those of us in the room who profess to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, are we living like it? Does how we speak, does how we act, does that reveal hearts that have been changed by the love of God for us? So verse 13, For judgment is without mercy, To one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. So here we get this warning to close it all up. If we come together and we show no mercy to one another, we're not concerned with the people around us and their interests and their good and their struggles, their sufferings. If we are not concerned with the people around us, we are in danger of judgment. Because if we profess to have been shown mercy, 
but yet don't show mercy. We're, not, we're revealing hearts that have never been changed by the mercy and love of God. So judgment is, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Jesus says this in, in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In Matthew 18, he has the parable of the unforgiving servant. He forgives one servant of a debt that's worth just billions upon billions, like a, a number that's almost incalculable to us. He forg- this, this master forgives one of this infinite debt, but yet then that servant goes away, and someone who owes him a small debt, he is harsh to him, shows him no mercy. Jesus says, look, if you don't forgive, or if you forgive in that way, you can't expect the Father to forgive you. What happens as our hearts come to know and experience the love of God in Christ Jesus is that will transform us. It will. Grace reigns through righteousness. The Spirit will have His way if we are in Christ Jesus and no longer under the flesh. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is, we'll close with this thought. To say that mercy triumphs over judgment, this, I think we can recognize that this is saying, or we can take it to mean two things, but it's really saying one. So, one, we can recognize this. Where have we seen mercy triumph over judgment? The cross. As Jesus has taken upon himself the judgment that we deserve so that we can experience the mercy and love of God. But in the context of these verses, he's actually commanding the people and warning the people to walk in mercy. And so I think this is what he's driving at, is as we show mercy, that mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Because if we don't show mercy, all we can expect is judgment, right? So then, we who have experienced the mercy, the triumphing, mer- triumphing mercy of God on the cross, we ought to be people who are most eager and ready and excited to show mercy to others. We ought... No, so. Regardless of personalities, extroverted, introverted, it does not matter. We will love, we will love in, in way, we are commanded to love in ways that are faithful to God, right? And yes, we are made with personalities and gifts and bents, and so it's going to be easier for some of us. But here's the reality, is that if we are people who have come to experience the love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, we are going to love each other likewise. So let's pray Let's pray that God would shape us according to his word to love as he has commanded us according to his word as we have seen in Jesus. Let's pray. Most holy God, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we show partiality for the ways in which we do not love the people around us as we have come to see and experience and know the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Lord God, we recognize that you are sanctifying your people and and we praise you and it ought to be celebrated for the ways in which you have grown 
the individuals who make up this body here and that you have grown this body to be a church that is welcoming, that is loving, and is kind. But the reality is, until you return, we will not be perfect. But you are sanctifying us, causing us to look more and more like Jesus. And we pray that you would do just that. So we pray that by your Spirit, you would open up our eyes to see and know and experience more of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. And that as we come to just taste and see how good you are, that, Lord God, our lives would be transformed. That we would be people when we come together, when we live with one another, when we are even apart from one another, that we would be so concerned with the people around us and loving them and caring for them. Not just the people that are easy to love, but the people who are in the most difficult situations, carrying the, the, the heaviest burdens, dealing with sin, dealing with temptation, the people that are hard for us to love, Lord God, would you give us grace to be kind, to be tender-hearted, just as you are towards us in Christ Jesus. So would you transform us by your Spirit, according to your word, that, this, that, that we here at Edgewood would truly come to look like just what is an irresistible community where we love one another in such a way that just as Jesus prayed and taught in the Gospel of John, that, that when the world looks at us, when they might not know what's going on, they'd say, well, those are disciples of Jesus for the way they love one another. So, Lord God, may we love one another in a way that's glorifying to you and is a reflection of your great love for us. I pray that you would bless us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.